Welcome in. This is Ira on Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We're in the studios today. Ira, you're back in South Florida. This is exciting stuff. Um, let's talk about where you've been because it's uh, it's been a pretty eventful week. You know, we have, obviously had to pre-tape last week because you had uh, some good reasoning for that. Well, I went to the national championship game. We did the show in the morning. I then get a call, hey, do you want to go to the U.S. Clay Court Championships, which is a tennis, professional tennis where TFO was playing, which he ended up winning. They didn't play till it rained the whole time on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. He didn't win until Sunday. They had played four, two rounds on Saturday, two rounds on Sunday. So it went by the Rivers Country Club, which is near where NRG Stadium was. I'm like, well, this works out great. You know, can't stop me from going. So I went there. Um, the one thing about Houston, I, I got after we did our show, I got kicked out of my hotel room. The people downstairs before my show, they said we have 50 rooms. Just you know, book it when you're when you're done with your show. I get done, and then they're like, oh, all San Diego State fans have taken it, and they took over the entire city. So San Diego State fans, they it was closer for them to go to Houston than of course Connecticut fans down. But the whole it was it was the Aztec Nation took over Houston that day, and then I was at the national championship game, so it was fun to go there. It, it was. You know, usually the Monday's a little downer because two teams have left and there's two teams that are still there. But they had 72,000 packed house and a lot of atmosphere. A great game, of course, did not live up to any of the hype, though. <laughs> so don't forget, you can follow Ira anywhere at Ira on Sports. Uh, great pictures from the national championship game from Final Four weekend. You can catch them all at Ira on Sports. Around 735, Ira, we're going to be joined by Andy Phillips. Tell us a little bit about Andy. Andy Phillips was uh, drafted by, well, not drafted. He was a Central Michigan player who was in the whole draft process who then decided to write a book about his drafting and his amazing Aaron Rodgers stories. You know, we're, we've always criticized Aaron Rodgers. He's the pro Aaron Rodgers story about how Aaron Rodgers worked with him when he was in training camp with Aaron Rodgers, I would say, the summer with Aaron. And then also certainly the Aaron Rodgers draft story, which is pretty interesting too. Well, this is one thing I wrote. There's really nobody more talked about in the NFL offseason than Aaron Rodgers. And what we're going to hear from Andy Phillips I haven't heard anywhere. This is not in the media at all. So this is some interesting stories. and it's, it's contrary to what we constantly hear about Aaron Rodgers. So you're going to want to join us at 735 with Andy Phillips. Let's get right into the show, Ira. Um, tell us about what happened you know, leading up to this game. Like you said, you got kicked out of your hotel room, which you weren't anticipating. What was going on uh, before the uh, NCAA championship game? I just think it was the, the idea was the Connecticut, who was 14-0, lost six of nine games. The feeling, even though they were a seven-point favorite in the game, I, I felt like, I'm like, I can't. They've been blowing everyone out the entire tournament. This was their tournament. This was their day. I had watched Senior State in Orlando. I watched two games for them. I was impressed with their offense. I saw one game in the front. So I saw three of their games. And I'm like, I cannot see how San Diego State plays in this game. Um, and then really, you know, that's sort of what the how the game played out, except for a small little point in the second half. That, that's what it was. And it, you really never felt watching this game that, UConn was going to falter or do anything to let San Diego State get in a position to win this game. And they just kind of held on and just waited the clock out. Right. It was 16 minutes to go. 16 minutes after this, from 16 minutes to 10 minutes, the score was like 10 6 San Diego State. And like they started out strong, the fans are going loud. I, I bought my ticket in the S, in the section. Florida, Florida Atlantic, and Miami were on one side, and San Diego State and Connecticut were on the other. So for in order to scalp a ticket, I said, I'd rather, it's going to be cheaper for me on one side to sit because those were people who were selling their tickets. So that was great. So I, But I could not even get the seats I wanted. I sat like 13th row, but I could not even get the, the two center sections for some reason. I mean, those Connecticut and San Diego State fans were really, those prices were ridiculous. Yeah. Yes, I was shocked with that. But so for six minutes of the game, San Diego State doesn't score. And so it goes from 10-6 to 16-10. And then it was 36-20 with a minute to go to halftime. And I'm like waiting for this to be a 30-point lead or 25-point lead. But I give CSA credit. They hung in there. They did not let that knockout blow that they had done to Gonzaga and before in terms of like how Connecticut and against Miami too, those four points at the end, CSA made it 36-24. But then the whole second half, the lead was 10 or 14 points. And then this is where the game, the referees, I think from the Women's Basketball Championship between Iowa and LSU showed up. They must have, because it seemed like every possession there was a foul. Connecticut was in the double bonus at the beginning of the this, middle of the second half, there was 47 free throws taken in a 40-minute game, which was and slowed the game down, slowed the process, and, and the fouls were ridiculous. Sticky tack fouls all left and right. I think on both teams, but um, but then you know it was, the, it was 13 minutes with eight minutes to go, and I saw San Diego State fans leaving the game at 13 minutes with eight minutes, and then Crazy. suddenly, but suddenly, Lede, Caden Johnson, and Tram all all scored 519 left, and it's down to 
to five points. Like, it just went from 13 to five like that. And, like, could we actually have a good ending in the game? Right then, this is where the biggest play of the game, Jordan Hawkins, that three he hit, that just was amazing. They made a three, and then Tristan Nuta had two free throws, and then they made more free throws, and then it was 14 with two minutes left. But that there was that one moment where I'm like, could this be this amazing comeback? But you got to give Sydney, uh, Connecticut credit. They made 24 out of 27 free throws. And we're criticizing these NBA teams for missing free throws. They made their free throws, 24 to 27. And that's so I don't think this was their best game of the tournament. They did I, I was not impressed. I think they had a chance to blow it out. But I think from that point, that was that Jordan Hawkins three was key and the fact that they just made their free throws. And Sonogo played great inside the MVP, uh, uh, 17 points, 10 boards. Impressive now for Husky's basketball, I believe, won uh, championships with three different coaches, which which is something really impressive that they've done here. And I don't know if this propels them into the upper echelon, you know, the schools that you consider, the Kentuckys, the Kansases, but they got to be pretty darn close. Well, I think after they won 99, 2004, 2011, or Jim Calhoun, and then there were, the rumor was, well, after he retired, is could they ever win again? And then Kevin Ollie takes them, and he wins his first year. And then he had a couple years that were okay, and then he gets fired because he has these bad years, and then they got recruiting violations, which were today's game. See, I like to pull them up because they had summer pickup games and a video coordinator engaged in uh, coaching instruction. It's ridiculous the fact that he's level one violations. So this big messy fight between Ollie and the school, he was fired and he actually just won recently after all these years, won all his money, like millions and millions of dollars back from them. But be able to hire Dan Hurley, what a great smart hire that was. Two years at Wagner, six years at Rhode Island, but now the last five years at UConn, 23 and 10, 31 and 8 the last two years and seems to be so comfortable and, you know, staying in the school, not going to be looked for somewhere else. You know, his brother, Bobby Hurley. I actually saw Bobby Hurley after one of the, after the Saturday game, just with walking with his wife, like in the, just all alone. Like, you're like, here he is. And, how, you know, you could see he had a big smile mm-hmm. on his face. He was so proud. Um, uh, the big Duke star coaches at Arizona State now. And his dad was a longtime coach at St. Anthony's, one of the best high school coaches of all time. So that was, from that perspective, your UConn fan with the women's basketball team and the men's basketball team, again, they are just a great basketball power in terms of going forward. And speaking of our local program, you know, we, we said last week one of the biggest wins was Dusty May um, agreeing to come back to FAU for, for the following season. I think he signed a 10-year extension. So this might be, we might see a lot of Dusty May trying to build a program in Boca. I don't know. You know, it was a 10-year, he's going to get paid. He, it went from 500000 to like $1.5 to $2 million. But the way these coaches get paid, it's the buyout is only $1.5 I think if somebody next year wants to come along and pay him. Um, but we talked about Mark Few. I mean, he might just say, I love Boca. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to build a whole program. So, but it, the buyout, I don't expect him to stay here 10 years unless he gets, I don't see that happening. Yeah, I, I can't see that happening either. But I got to give credit to, I want to give credit to San Diego State. Brian Dutcher, their coach, he was a nine-year assistant in Michigan under Steve Fisher. 18 years assistant under Steve Fisher at San Diego State. So he's only then, so he's in his late 50s and he gets this job at San Diego State. And that was great to hire him because in the last six, four years, he's he's 23 and 5, 23 and 9, 32 and 7. The year that they canceled, he was 30 and 2. They were going to be one of the top seeds in the tournament and you see what they do right now they get they sell their 12,000 seat arena senior state the football team is doing great they build a new stadium everything and those fans are passionate now they don't have an NFL team anymore so I really think that whether senior state goes in the Pac-10 or goes to the Big 12 they are a hot you know they are someone that everyone wants in, in, in Southern California because that this is their team is San Diego State and San Diego has rabid fans in baseball you know they, they were rabid chargers but they, they come out for their, their team so it's good to see uh, you know, they're having some success on the college side there. I have Jim from Millennium Jet Card. Jim has an amazing promotion going on, a f- private flight from West Palm Beach to Louisville, Kentucky. So you can see the Formula One and uh, the Kentucky Derby in the same weekend. Thank you, Ira. Uh, yes, we are planning on taking off Saturday morning, May 6th, to the Louisville to the Kentucky Derby on a private jet. It's a luxury Embraer 145, seats 30 people. We'll be coming back Saturday night, and then Sunday morning we'll be jetting back to Miami for the Formula One. Uh, This is a pretty interesting experiment we're doing to go to two events like this, but uh, we're based out of Palm Beach, and we'll be flying out of Palm Beach International. Uh, We're a company that provides flights all over the country and the world if you really want to get into that, but... We're excited to be able to offer this promotion to people. And what number so, should what Jim? What number should they call? They can call five six one seven seven nine 
800-800-7073. Well, Jim, thanks so much for coming on and talking about this. I think this is the greatest thing in the world to go to see. You know how much I love sports, and this is phenomenal. Yeah. To see two big events in the same in 24 hours would be tremendous. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Jim. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Don't forget, social media, we've got you covered at Ira on Sports. Andy Phillips is going to join us to talk uh, some NFL draft stories at 735. Masters weekend is in the books. And I think that most fans are pretty happy with the storylines that got presented for us. And maybe it was just the live guys returning and the weather. It was kind of, a, it was kind of a, an interesting Masters for me, for me in that regard. I think it ended up being a great one. Yeah, I hated the weather. The weather messed it up. The weather messed it up because you wanted to watch. You, you, you just would rather just see it without the weather. Didn't know when it was going to start. You want to have a long day. So I think from that perspective, John Rahm, we've been talking about him on the show forever. I was the one, remember, I was at Oakmont years ago for the U.S. Open. It was this Friday. He's finishing up on the ninth hole on that day late, and I'm the only one watching John Rahm, and there's this young woman that's sitting there, and I was like, I'm like, what are you following Rahm for? He goes, he's my girl boyfriend, and he's going to be the number one ball player in the world one day. And I said, she was right, and you know, that's how you see it, his wife and his kid. That's who became his wife and his kids and stuff. And uh, Rahm has been tremendous, and he's been the hottest golfer coming into this. And I said, what do we say on the show? I said, Brooks Kepka, and I said, John Rahm, maybe Max Homa, that type of thing. And and Scotty Scheffler was not too. But it was like from the storyline of Rom, he's been playing great. He deserves this is what great players do. They win tournaments like this. But did he play his best tournament? No. I mean, I thought the ending, I was hoping on Sunday that Brooks would it would be closer. Usually mm-hmm. these masters are coming down to those last couple holes and everything can happen. It just didn't happen. Yeah, for me. Congratulations to John Rahm, but to me, this was more Brooks Kepka losing this tournament than John Rahm winning it. Rahm didn't do anything spectacular on on Saturday or Sunday, or in the last two rounds, I should say. Brooks just fell apart. I mean, he looked like a completely different golfer in the final round than he did in the the two and a half or three leading up to that. Not taking it away from Rom, but he, he didn't have to do anything amazing to, to get this win. Right. Well, he got that lead, and I think the key was when, on Friday when, when it was raining and he was able to go when I thought he was going to stay at like six or five, and he was able to play. He, Brooks got the benefit of the fact that he started out early and then did got to play early on Friday when it was nice, and when the weather got bad, then Rom's playing in bad weather, and then was able to actually get closer to Brooks mm-hmm. and no one else did and that's what made the difference. Brooks got the lead Rom came close enough and then but Brooks just still you know they're even on Saturday and Sunday and he couldn't he couldn't get the distance and he had the lead. So. Starting off on, on uh, the, you know the final round when he just put it I don't know a, a nautical mile left into the next fairway it was just like this might be a long day for Brooks Kepka. one of the things that I'm hating now is hearing all the, you know, live haters and PGA Tour guys coming out. Well, I told you they can only play 54 holes. Well, what happened to Phil Mickelson then? Because he looked fantastic for his final 18. So don't tell me live guys can't play four days of golf. Yeah, I mean, Reed had a huge first, uh, the final day, but Phil Mickelson shot a 65. Uh, because he tied with Brooks in second place at eight under. Um, you don't realize that, um, that Phil had 21 birdies, which was two more than Rom. If you took out... Uh, if you took out uh, Phil's two double bogeys, I mean, mm-hmm. Rom had a double bogey to start the first. His, how about Rom's first hole? He double bogeyed, four and, and, yeah. four, and then he was able. But no, amazing performance. The fact that Phil played so well, and they would not. I kept texting. Could they please show Phil Mickelson? They wouldn't show him on the Masters Live. They wouldn't show him on anything. And it's like, when are they going to show Phil Mickelson? Like it's ridiculous. They don't show yeah. him. And Here's he Jordan Spieth in twentieth. <laughs> right, and then and then he was playing on Sunday. He was playing with Jordan. They would show four shots of Jordans. And None of Phil, and they're playing together, and they were had the same score at the whole time, which was ridiculous. I mean, they purposely weren't, but Phil, what in a performance! Fifty-two years old, he won the twenty twenty-one PGA Championship. He has done nothing since going into this tournament. It was a hundred to one or two hundred to one odds, and then for him to come and do this and finish second place. I mean, first of all, he's not washed up. I mean, all the criticism. He doesn't want a single point on live. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> I mean, that what Phil did is just tremendous on Masters. That, that was his best round was when he shot, and he's been. It, it was that was. Is pretty, you know. I'm sure. I mean, all the PGA people are like, I hate live, I hate live, this and that. But you're right. The, it, also, it doesn't matter about the round three or four days. They were all playing bunch together in one day. I just Brooks didn't. I was just surprised at how Brooks played. But yeah, Reed, the lip golfers, as I, I said, did well. 18 golfers, 12 made the cut. 
Kevin Daw withdrew, Louis Olsen withdrew, but Baba Sergio and Bryson missed the cut, but DJ made the cut. He did not play well, Dustin Johnson no, did play didn't. well. But Cam Smith made the cut, but then Joaquin Neiman was in there, and Patrick Reed finished and uh, tied for fourth place at seven under, and you have Phil and Brooks. So it was, it was a, it, I felt from the Liv's perspective, I think people thought they had no chance. I mean, Brooks came in here, we talked about 40 to one. I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah, so. I had some money on him and was disappointed. Sorry, uh, yeah, disappointed. Hey, no, stuff happens. And like I said, you didn't feel good uh, right after he started. Some of the bigger names that missed the cut here were, were a little surprising. Obviously, you know, you were expecting more f- from some of these golfers. Uh, Justin Thomas didn't make the cut. Uh, he's, you know, he was one of the, you know, prohibitive favorites, of course. Anybody else performance that stood out to you here? Rory McIlroy, you have to say, 72 and a 77. Someone who's been now for a decade trying to get the career Grand Slam. And he looked like he was playing well, but I just, I just totally fell apart. Could not get anything going. I mean, a 72 and a 77 when you have to make a cut in a tournament. That's an easy tournament to make the cut in. Uh, just terrible again. I mean, after he finished second last year, people were like, okay, he's back. He's going to have a chance. I, I just am not sold on Rory. I will not bet him on these tour- on the majors. I just think he's going to throw in these bad rounds, and he seems to be throwing those those rounds in earlier. Um, but uh, but the, uh, Tiger made the cut. Yeah. But he, he probably didn't even want to. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he was at the se- in the middle of Saturday. He was on Friday. It, then it, it, the round went up, pushed over to Saturday. He he missed the cut. I mean, he was he was at plus three. The cut was plus two. But because the golfers brought it back, it was brought to plus three. And then he went and started to play on Sunday on Saturday at seven holes, two bogeys, then two double bogeys, and then they stopped playing on Saturday. Remember, the tournament started late, ended late on Friday, ended late on or, I mean, early on Friday, early on Saturday. And then he just could not come back, which was a smart move on his part, not to come back on Sunday to play another. He'd have to play 28 holes of golf. Now, everyone thinks Tiger's done. This is my comment about Tiger. I saw him at the Genesis. This problem, if the problem that's hurting him is not from the car accident, but it's from plantar fasciitis, and he has everything on his leg, is when I had plantar fasciitis, the same thing. I had all the bandages and all the things you have to do with it. This is fixable. Like, this is a fixable thing. Now, if he can, you can get surgery for it. There is ways to court. I had plantar fasciitis, could not walk, and then I could run 13 miles. So if he can get this fixed, I'm not saying he's done. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say, Tiger Woods is finished. He is in tremendous pain. It's a terrible plantar fasciitis really hurts. But if that's what the injury is and not the broken ankle and the broken leg and the back and all those other things, if it's just the plantar fasciitis, then I'm not going to say that he's done. One thing I didn't realize either, Ira, and I heard um, Brandel Chambly say this, Augusta's the hardest walk on the tour. Oh, yes. I didn't realize it. It doesn't look like that on TV. And you hear about Beth Page, which obviously not an annual event, but I didn't realize that these pros consider this the toughest walk on the course. So it's not going to be easy for Tiger, of course. At some of these courses, it seems like the clubhouse is up high, like a Genesis. And then you walk that one mm-hmm. walk and everything's flat. And then you have to walk back up. So you see the long walks up and back from maybe the, the clubhouse area. But this whole course is up and down. I walked it. It was hard for two days last year. I, I couldn't make it this year, but I, I could see what that was. You, any um, you know comments here from the uh, the days leading up to the final day? Well, I just want to I want to just talk about a couple of the golfers. I Scotty Scheffler, he played terrible. He was he was he was the first in greens regulation, but he could not putt at all. And this is what makes me confident of betting Scotty going forward is the fact that he played could not putt at all and still finished in tenth place in tenth place. Like that just shows me is that he could have the worst tournament. He looks awful and he's still in tenth. And Cam Young, who I like coming into this again, he was the first in driving distance. He finished in seventh. Now he wasn't really a factor. Most they showed him on TV not a factor. And then Jordan Spieth. Jordan Spieth, I will never, I'm not going to bet him because he, you saw him on Sunday. He looked fantastic. He shot at, what, a 66, but he throws those 76s in. He has those days in those holes. Can't play four rounds. Talk I about just, live golfers. I, right. And I just cannot, I, I just don't have the feeling that he's he's always, he is someone who, if I just said, make, you got to make an eagle on this hole, he might be the one golfer right now that said, I'm going to put my money on Jordan Spieth to make the eagle. But I just don't trust him for four rounds in order to play so well. And then we got to give credit to Sam Bennett, U.S. Huge. amateur champion. I mean, he was 68, 68, finished 16th, and now he's playing, I think, today, 36, 36 holes in Texas today. A&M golf. <laughs> and then the older golfers, Fred Couples is 63, made the cut, is the oldest golfer to ever make a cut. And then Larry Mize and Sandy Lau, two former champions that they're allowed to keep playing. But this will be, they announced their last tournament. So from that perspective, it was uh, it, that was an interesting perspective. Ira on Sports, True Oldies channel, Mike Balsamo here as well. Follow uh, online on social media at Ira on Sports. What else you got from the Masters? Just, I felt that on Thursday, you know, Kepka and Robin Hoblin were there at 7-under. And then on Friday, Brooks got out, you know, 12-under. 
um, really looked like he was coasting. And Jason Day came up and got like a minus eight and was like getting excited. And then he just had like double bogey, double bogey, double bogey. And Rom was at minus nine. And, but Rom going from six to nine when it was raining, that was the tournament right there. So he gets within nine. And then Saturday, um, um, there was like there was a point where you think Justin Thomas gonna make the tournament the field, but he doesn't. He he he. What he did on Saturday when they came back after the rain was just terrible in terms of not missing the cut. But Rom got to ten under, and then he hangs on at the end of it. Birdie, bogey, birdie, bogey. So the last four holes he was t- he was at, at minus ten. And the difference between the people who started and ended plus eighteen and plus eighty. So that's what I'm saying is the timing of the tour. The people that teed off late on Thursday, early on Friday, like Brooks, had this huge benefit over everyone else not doing it. So leadership leader go board going to third round was Brooks at twelve under, and Rom was at ten. And then uh, Saturday, Rom, Rom started, you know, after they began again on Saturday, Rom bogeyed four and five. He fell to 13, and Brooks is at 13 under. And this is again where the tournament switches because the rain started really heavy. Brooks has a four shot lead. If he could just get a few more holes in there on Saturday, he might have five, six, mm-hmm. seven strokes. He could not get that lead. He had the momentum. So then they, they call it on Saturday. They come back on Sunday. They have to finish that third round. What's the first hole they do? Kepka bogeys, Rom bogeys. That was crucial. And then this is like in 2015 when uh, DeMarco had a 13-9 lead over Tiger. The minus third, and Tiger was able to pick those up like in a second and win by three strokes. It's almost exactly like that. Then eighth hole, both birdied. And that was like the last time then they birdied the rest of the time. And uh, it ended up going to the final round. It was 11-9. Rom, uh, Brooks was at 11-9 when they had to restart and go from 11-9. to and then I think he was also hurt because Cantlay and Hovland were such slow players. So slow. And uh, Brooks made a comment that, that Ron went to the bathroom 12 times during it. <laughs> and you can see, and both of them like to play fast. No one likes to play faster than Brooks. I remember it was at the US Open at uh, Beth Page, and, or it was PJ, or the, one of them when they played at Beth Page. And, uh, and Brooks was with Harold Varner, and he had to go look for his ball. And it just totally threw him out of his. Like, he likes to just. Look at the ball, hit it. He doesn't want to do anything else, and he could not stand. And I think that hurt him in going. There's some iconic pictures of both Rom and Brooks just standing there in the fairway with their golf club, like on the ground. Like guys, come on! Like, can we just go ahead? Can, yeah, we, we, play we, can we play through? We play through. Like because they're just sitting there, Brooks. <laughs> They haven't even vacated the green yet, and Brooks is swinging the club. Like, he was ready to go the entire day. Not an excuse. I mean, th- this is part of the PGA Tour, but you do feel a little bit bad for him. Yeah, and then and the third hole, Ron Birdie. This is on Sunday, the final round. Ron Birdie's his first since the eighth hole. And then it was like this first time there was a birdie between both of them in like six hours, it mm-hmm. seemed like, as they said. And then Kefka, um, Kefka got a bogey. Now that they're, they're tied at 10. So now you're tied at 10. And you're like, okay, tied at 10. But then Kefka bogeys nine, and then Ron Birdie. Eight to go. That was eleven nine, and it stated that eleven nine for away a long. That was he never got within a stroke the rest of the time. Yeah. Now Spieth went to get to eight. Phil got eight, and I saw Ron being interviewed saying he saw when Mickelson finished with eight. He then he knew that it was almost like dismissive. I was like, I don't think Kevin was going to come get me. Like I he think knew Kevin wasn't coming to get him. I, I thought he was. I wish I wish he would have called me up and said like you know it's not Kevin's not coming. He was so he was more worried at that time about getting to eight. Um, and then Brooks bogeys at nine. Brooks bogeys to go to eight and. Ron Bobby Vivogi, that was in the same hole, made it to 10. But then at, uh, at, then it was just sort of say 10-8, 10-8. And then at 12, on 12, when Kepka bogeys back to 7, then it was it was over. It was at that point he just coasted through. And that's where I was hoping for that great ending. And it just, Brooks could not make that. And I'm like, Brooks has been in this. Three times he's gone to the finals with that lead. Three times he's finished. Not this time for, for a major championship. I, I do think it's safe to say, though, that live golfers are not... Uh, not just playing for fun anymore, you know, when, they, when they're doing their events. They're here, they're going to be legit forces in these majors, and if anyone's just dismissing 54-hole golfers, whatever they want to call it, they're crazy. <laughs> yeah. Let's um, get into the NBA. Iron Sports Trollies channel. Andy Phillips going to join us uh, here in about 15 minutes or so. Fantastic stories all about the NFL draft and something you've never heard of about Aaron Rodgers. I'm excited for that. NBA playoffs, it's not uh, essentially sealed up, but it looks like we're, we're down to the nitty-gritty here. I don't know if the Heat are going to be able to uh, slide their way up here, but it looks like they may be destined for the play-in. Well, they are. Well, the Heat are in the, the Heat are in the play-in game. They have their this, the Heat now play um, the Hawks. They'll be a Tuesday night. I'll be there. At, now it's called. Uh, Kaseya Arena. I can't pronounce it. So it's a new arena. They have they're the elite team that's played now an arena that's been like I think it's the third name this year. So they play the Hawks Tuesday. If they and Toronto plays Chicago, if the Heat beat the Hawks on Tuesday, then they're they don't have to play. They're going to be at 
Boston to start mm-hmm. and probably a Sunday or Monday, probably Sunday, they'll probably start that in the in the round, the 7-2. But if they lose, then they have to go on Friday and play the winner of Toronto-Chicago. Um, they would play that again also in Kaseya Arena, and that would be that game. So that's sort of it's set. So like one through six is set, and now they have the play-in. And little, comp- you know, when I look at this field, I, I say I feel bad for the Sixers a little bit because they are going to have to play the Celtics in the second round if the Celtics make it through, and then the Bucks. So they have a tougher road. I like the Bucks and Celtics make it to the finals. Um, probably I would say, I want to see how this breaks down, but I, I would say I, I think because Chris Middleton is just not healthy, I think the Celtics beat the Bucks and go to the finals again. But you have the first round series, you're going to have the Nets and 76ers, and you're going to have the Cavaliers, Knicks. I like the Cavaliers over the Knicks in the 4-5 series. Hey, Knicks might be in the Eastern Conference Finals, Ira. I think you're dismissing them too early. Dismissing them, dismissing <laughs> them. But no, but this is, so that's the East. But from the, you know I love the Heat every year. I've said Jimmy Butler, playoff Jimmy, and I'm the biggest uh, the pom-pom fan raiser of the Heat in the playoffs every single year. That's why last year I won my fantasy because I said they're going to go to the, they're going to make the finals and they almost did. I just have not felt that confidence this year, the entire year. So I'm a little nervous about the Heat, but they better beat the Hawks. This is a tough, they have a tough game on Tuesday night. That's why I'm excited to go to that game. What's happening in the West? The West, everything broke the way I wanted to, sort of. It's because I wanted the Suns to have the fourth pick. Because I think the Suns are better than the Clippers. And I want to see Durant and the Warriors in the Western Conference Final. Because in this, whereas one, I like the one and two in the East. I don't like the one and two and three in the West. Denver has played terrible this last month. Memphis, I'm not sold on at all. And Sacramento at three. Those are the top three. So I really think the Suns at four, which the way that it goes one, four, to, you know how they how the seedings work will be four plays five that the Suns would play Golden State now what does it mean for the play-in the Lakers are going to be at seven so the Lakers would if they win against Minnesota then Lakers would play Memphis and then they would eventually have to play either the Kings or the Golden State winner so the Lakers and Golden State could play in the second round which would be interesting um, the big thing was that the Lakers have been playing well at the end they made it their seventh seed and they play Minnesota team who. That Rudy Gobert, who plays for Minnesota, punched his own teammate <laughs> in the middle of the game, uh, Kyle Anderson. And then Jalen McDaniels was somewhat upset about something, and he's the guy who's supposed to defend LeBron James, and he punched a wall and broke his right hand. So they were throwing punches when they should have been maybe at the MA fight. They were not <laughs> the wrong. They got confused. So Minnesota looks like the Lakers will have an advantage over Minnesota about that. Any comments you have here on load management? I know we're staunch haters of it here on Iron Sports. I, I've had it. I, this is I'm telling you, it's going to kill. I, no one loves the NBA more than me. I love it to death. It's it, they are they put a new CBA in, and the new CBA collective bargaining agreement. I was waiting for the owners to say, oh, this is not going to happen. We're going to do something. But the owners were happy enough with saying, okay, we have 51% of the revenue, or 57, they got 57% of the revenue, not 51%. So they actually have a, a higher percent of the revenue now. They're happy with that. From the old, they, they didn't want to fight with that. And the players, it just seemed like the players were okay too. Like they don't want to have to play. The own, But I thought the owners were going to make this an emphasis, and they didn't. The, the, you read in the press about the 65 games to win these awards. It's not even set in stone. It could be if you're injured, it doesn't matter. There's no punishment on the players for not playing. The teams, the owners don't seem to be care that the players don't the players don't play. And the players don't care if the players don't play. This is a league that used to have Jordan play 82, 82, 82, Malone, 82, 82, 82, Javar, 82, all the time. And now it's a joke. And now we're left on Saturday on, on Sunday or Saturday. It was Saturday. Dallas Mavericks were playing. They benched five of their players, they're in a chance to win their playing game. They have a chance to go to the playoffs and they purposely lost so they could get the 10th pick in the draft. Otherwise, they would lose it if they made it. And they they play Luka for one quarter because of Slovakian day, Slovakian, Slovakian day because he's Slovakian and he wanted to show his fans that showed up for them, which is a, this is a joke. And it, again, I, I want to care, like, we want to care about our teams. Like, if you watch WWE wrestling, it's Fixed, but at least it looks like they care. If I watch pro players who don't show up these games, I went to the Celtic Heat game, and I don't want to hear if anyone ever brings up what the regular season record was. I don't even want to hear it because the Celtics played the Heat or in the season, and it was two G League teams. Mm-hmm. We could go up to where the G League Heat team play and pay five, ten dollars and go to a game. Like this is ludicrous, and I just think that now the owners. I think it's a bad mistake for the owners. They feel that the, that the fans are still going to keep buying the tickets. I don't think they will, and and people say, well, you don't. 
know what you're talking about. Well, you know what? Major League Baseball, you sort of get in these sports where they all think they know it better and they know what's best. And then Major League Baseball used to be the best sport in the world. Everyone followed it. And then it fell down. Boxing used to be the most popular sport. Then it got crazy. The thing is that it doesn't mean it's big now. It's going to always stay big. And I think if not having competition, this is a no other sport is dealing with this load management. Draymond Green came out and said 65 games might be too much. They play 82. Like you're not supposed. This is ludicrous. It's. It's insane when you think about it. And then I heard some guys, well, why don't you just shorten the season to 65 games? Because they'll play 50 then. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the, the amount of games you're playing. They want a percentage of nights off. That's just what it comes down to. I couldn't imagine, you know, you're trying to grow the game. Young fans that live here in, in Miami or say you're a young fan in New York, you're looking up to guys like John Morant, Luka Doncic. These are the guys you want to see. And your family buys tickets for you for your birthday, and then two months later when you go, the stars aren't playing. And you're getting a G League team that, that's it, that's there. It's going to kill the sport for you, that you're going to see the stars. In, in any sport, the stars are driving it, and basketball is the leader in that, and the stars don't play 30% of the time. It is unbelievable. And you go to these games and see all the stars sitting there in street clothes, and you don't know. See, it's, it's not even announced. It's not like they announced it before. And you don't get your money back from your tickets. You don't get any refunds. You show up there, and you listen, and this is what I can criticize about the radio and TV hosts. They don't pay for the games. Like, I'm telling you, yeah. I go to these games. I paid... $300 for this stupid Miami Heat ticket that I'm going to go Tuesday night. I pay for those tickets. And a lot of other, 18 other thousand fans also pay money for those tickets. They go to these games. The people who in the media don't go to the games, oh, they don't care if what does it matter what happened. They watch it on TV. They'll turn to a game that it matters. But it's not how they expect people to show up. Then just do a studio. Just put it on a television. This is ridiculous. And I really, I'm so against it. And I, you don't see it in college. You don't see it in hockey. You don't see it in football. You don't see it in baseball. It's crazy what's going on right now. Now. Yep. Um, Iron Sports Trolley Channel, Mike Balsamo. We got about seven minutes, so we have to get to Andy Phillips here. NHL, Ira, like you said, these guys do not take off, and it's a good thing they don't because in the East, it's going to come down to the final game. I've got tickets actually for for both of the Panthers, two two games here, and they may need to win both of them to get in because your Pittsburgh Penguins are on the outside looking in right now. Only a point back on both the Islanders and the Panthers with two games to play. This is crazy. Like one of these teams is not going to make it, and they're all good hockey teams. I know people think that, you know, Boston, who's going to be the number one seed, could lose to either of these three teams. This is what, why the, you know, the dialed up intensity in the NHL, whereas they're phoning it in here, here at the end for the NBA. It's a big difference. Well, I think that's a big difference. And I just noticed that they say Connor McDavid scored 150 points. He's the last person to do that since Mario did it 161 in 95, 96. And I think the one thing that hurts the NBA also is they don't have like the Aaron Judge. If Aaron Judge would not sit out games, if he knew that he doesn't hit these records and not 662 home runs, like the point is that in an NBA, there's no who scored the most points ever in a season. It's the season averages. It's all these averages. It's not like when the NHL, which says, oh, you scored 150 points. Like those are great numbers. Baseball has numbers. Football has numbers. They have numbers they want to hit. How many yards? How many of those things? I think that makes a big difference. And so I think that's from the hockey perspective. I'm excited. We'll see what happens if Florida or I, you know, Florida or Penguins are battling for that last spot. It, it's interesting you bring that up. Could you imagine, like, you know, for the last five years or so, Julio Jones, you know, he, he can't play more than six games. Like, well, Julio averaged 100 yards a game. He played five, but he averaged 100. It's just so different. Yeah, it's really the only sport that we do that is the NBA, where everyone else is accumulating stats for the entire season. And, I mean, congrats to Conor McDavid. There's a lot of people now that think the Oilers can win it all, or at least go to the Stanley Cup. And we talked how important that would be for us. Like, if I said, Aaron, Aaron Judge averages, like, .5 home or whatever, .5 home runs a game. It's the highest average. Like, never even heard. I said, what does Aaron Judge average a home run a game? No one even knows those numbers. But in the NBA, we talk about it. But Aaron Judge, he's not going to sit out games because he wants to break the record. And that's what it, oh, it just, I am going to be on this point because, and I just can't stand the commentators about the load management, but let we can move to the next subject. Yeah, so we, you brought up Aaron Judge. Let's talk about baseball. One thing I don't understand, Ira, how do the Tampa Bay Rays do it? I mean, this team, most people, even baseball fans, couldn't name you more than like four guys on Tampa Bay. They're always good. They haven't lost yet this season. It's a little ridiculous. They're nine to zero, and they haven't. I think they no played been, some scrubby teams, but no one's been within four runs of them the whole season. <laughs> like they're on the pace of 162 and zero, where they play great. Um, and the other thing I think with the Yankees now at six and three, Aaron Judge had two home runs last night. But the it's, the National League is weird that the Brewers have a 25 run difference. They have two losses. Pirates are six and three, and everyone else is sort of like in the mix. Like mm -hmm. the Mets are five and five. The Phillies are. I mean, the Astros and the Phillies met in the World Series last year. The Astros are four and six, and the Phillies are three and seven. 
seven. So it's uh, it is it is one of those things where these teams haven't got started yet. No, but baseball obviously it's a marathon, and and the worst teams lose uh, win sixty games. So even you know there's so much parity there that that it's hard to be consistent. Baseball so far though, things have been rebounding. I watch a lot of baseball and a lot of bad starting pitching. You know through the first go around or two through the rotation things are picking up we're starting to see a little more um norm you know normalcy coming up and one guy i should mention because he does play for tampa that number one prospect in in the universe for like five years got up last year was pretty bad got hurt wander franco and now he's coming out this year like he may you know at the end of this season we may be talking about him as a top two or three player in the league whereas some people wouldn't have known his name a year ago so keep your eyes on wander franco in tampa had a good UFC card um, this past weekend, and you were excited for this one. I watched it as well. What's your takeaways from here? Because I know you get something kind of took you as caught you off guard here at the end of one of them. Well, I, Gilbert Vernes beat Jorge Mazaval in a unanimous decision. Now Mazaval is from Miami. He loves Miami. He talks to Miami all the Fight time. He's in Miami. Yeah, he fights Miami, and he wanted. He's thirty years old, thirty seventeen. He's now lost four matches in a row, and he retired after the match. I, I watched it. He still puts a good fight up. It was nice, but you can see that he probably should have. This was not, you know, this was definitely a retirement. wanted to fight one more time in Miami. And it was exciting, and it sold the tickets, and it was a big, this was a big UFC fight. There wasn't, for people to understand, this was a pay per view, 287. So this was a big, big fight, and it was great to have it there. So he was excited, and it, and it was good. I think that brought the crowds out and everything. But then the second match, Alex Pereira is the champion, the middleweight champion of the world. He defeated Israel Adesama. Uh, a few months ago in in UFC 281. And Adesama was by, by far the middleweight champion, and this was a big upset. But Pereira had fought Israel in kickboxing twice and won. So this was like his third win in a row. And I had thought that Israel was going to win this fight because I felt like there's more motivation. Like, finally, this is guy's getting... And... Uh, Alex is a bigger fighter. Like, he looks like he should be fighting, like, light heavyweight, not middleweight. And he was dominant. The first round was sort of even. But in that second round, Israel just tricked him to come in and then knocked him out. And it was one of those knockout cold, like, total mm. knockout, which you don't usually see in the UFC, and knocked out cold. And so it was a big win for Israel. And then what I said about the end of it is he took seems pretending like he's shooting a bow and arrow at him. And I, I was about to say, boy, you don't see it in the UFC. You don't see the Angel Reese in terms of the taunting afterwards. And not only does he that with a bow and arrow when his opponent is lying on the ground, then he goes and mocks his son, who when his son was like five years old, mocked him or something. And then his son, now his son's older now, but there was like Israel went crazy after the fight. And I just, I felt that was, I had it. I was about to say about the Angel Reese comp that people don't really taunt after event. I can't remember teams taunting. I remember like Isaiah. Thomas showed bad sportsmanship because he left before the bowl game was over. Uh, they criticized Tom Brady for not shaking Nick Foles' hand. But I don't ever really, unless you talk about wrestling, you don't even see it. And especially at UFC, usually these fighters hate each other. They fight and they're like, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, they're hugging each other after hugging. the match. I, and then I was about to make this great comment and then I see, I wonder if they're going to filter into the rest of the sports where you're going to see more taunting afterwards at, at a sporting event, which I don't want to see. You want to see, you want to celebrate. You want to be like Michael Jordan, Dwayne Wade and jump on the table and show how great you are. You don't want to go to your opponent and start taunting. Like you won. Like Shooting it's great. fake arrows into his same, body. Yeah. Same, I just couldn't believe it. And I, and now a lot of you see people are, people are, and people, someone made a comment like, oh, it's a, whether it's a female or male thing. And I'm like, I don't think, see this in male sports. I watch sports all the time. I don't remember. I don't remember as going on. I mean, I just don't remember people the taunting at the end of, you know, certainly during it, there's taunting all the time. Uh, everyone does The lead does up it. is all trash talk. But yeah. after the end, it's like, and sometimes we don't like it. We don't like that the, at the end of the basketball game, they're hugging and they're loving each other and everything like that. And they're exchanging jerseys and football and stuff like that. But there is a point where I did think that I was shocked what Israel did because I'm like, I wonder if this is going to filter in and you don't want to see this in youth sports and those things. You want to show class. I mean, that's why they have people shaking hands after a game, but you don't want to, which I don't know if they should be shaking hands. I mean, at this point, there's a fight in a women's basketball game where they were shaking hands. I don't know if you should be shaking hands necessarily, but I would like to see it after the end of the event more sportsmanship. Let's go to Andy Phillips here. This is Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. We're so excited to have Andy Phillips, who just came out of a book called Round Zero about the NFL draft. It's the perfect uh, draft idea in terms of I love the name of the book, but Andy, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, the, I appreciate you liking the name. It's uh, it's funny. Not a lot of people ask me about the name, but the the point of the name is, hey, listen, it's everything that we have questions about that takes place before round one. It, it, obviously, 
makes sense when you think about why we would do that. But it's that January up until that first pick sweet spot. Obviously, some stories dip into, you know, once they're drafted, just a little bit if it's needed. But, yeah, it's, it's that sweet spot of stuff that we think we maybe know about, but there's a lot of stuff that we don't. So I appreciate you touching on that. Well, you touch in your book a little about your draft process. You were not Bryce Young, uh, C.J. Stroud, Will Levis. You weren't going to be number one in the draft. You were sort of projected to be at the end of the draft coming out of Central Michigan. Tell us a little about your story in the whole draft process. Yeah, and that was really the, the point of the book was I had, you know, being an undrafted guy, I actually had a very, in my opinion, I thought unique draft story in the sense that, you know, I started almost four years at Central Michigan, but I knew I was undersized. I was 6'2", 300 pounds soaking wet, but I had a great pro day, 4'9", 940, 26 fence reps, did all the drills well, did my, my jumps were, you know, 30 inches and 9 feet 2 on the broad and everything. I checked every box except for I had short arms which <laughs> in a smaller size and Coming out of the Mac, those are just little questions that you just can't have. But regardless, we had enough feedback during the pre-draft process. Uh, my agent, Carter Chow, who's uh, you know, Dean Dubin Sports, uh, they deal really well with late-round guys. You know, Dean Dubin's represented Tom Brady and Julian Edelman and Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, they do really well with smaller schools. <laughs> I would say those were, good, those were good late-round draft picks. Go ahead, continue. No, no doubt. No doubt. So they had enough feedback that they thought I was a legit late-round guy. After my pro day, once everything started checking, conversations they were having, conversations I was having, well, we get into draft weekend, and the first call I get, it wasn't the first call from this person or this team, but the first call I get draft weekend was about an hour before the first round. Now, obviously, I knew they weren't calling for the first round, but Dave Magazoo, the offensive line coach with the Bears at the time, called me and pretty much told me how amazing of a weekend it's going to be for me, and he can't wait to, he can't wait to talk to me. So I thought, well, hey, I have a shot with the Bears late round at the minimum. I bet they'll at least want me as an undrafted guy offering me a contract. It gave you, it gave me a little more confidence in the weekend, to be honest with you, that it felt like the Bears undrafted signing was almost like the floor. Well, weekend comes and goes. I don't get an offer. I don't get drafted. I don't get a contract offer. The Bears went radio silent after the draft. It was the craziest thing. And I, long story short, I end up getting a tryout opportunity with Green Bay, go to the tryout, get signed as the only tryout player of the 25 there. And, you know, then I'm in the correct spot, right? Then it's like as if I had just been signed, no big deal. But it took me an extra week post-draft to get to that point. But every year when I watch the draft now, every year it always popped in my head, what prospect is getting that style of a call? Is getting that call, and more importantly, I started thinking over the years, well, why the heck did Coach Magazoo call me? Because I'm sure he wouldn't have wasted his time if they not only weren't going to draft me, but if he knew they didn't, the GM and the scouts didn't even want to sign me after. I don't think he would have wasted his time making, you know, giving me a call. So I've always wondered, is there a disconnect? What is the process between a general manager and their coaches uh, during the pre-draft process? And then this idea really started formulating that, hey, I think there's a lot we don't know, especially when it comes to that you know, pre-draft time. I think I need to get all four of these uh, angles that make up that period, your players, coaches, general managers, and uh, agents, and see if we can piece some stuff together based on stories. So that was really the motive of the book was my own little experience. I'm going to deviate a little bit from the draft process because certainly for this summer, you spent a summer with, we should have the book called Summer with Aaron Rodgers. So you spent the summer with him and Aaron's been criticized a lot for, well, if you're just, uh, you know, he doesn't take the rookies out and do PlayStation with them. They don't go to dinner together. They don't watch movies, but you seem to have a different experience with Aaron Rodgers, who seems to be in the news all every single day about going to the Jets, but go ahead. Yeah. You know what? I, it, there's nothing that drives me more nuts than the lack of information yet over discussion about how Aaron is with teammates because there's been a handful, a few here and there guys that have went into the media um, and maybe said some things that they didn't like about Aaron as a teammate. Very few, but there is a couple and then this, everyone runs with there. Listen, I was the last man on the roster in Green Bay in 2015 the day I got signed. I was the 89th man on the roster the day I got signed, yet the very first team function I was a part of uh, was like a walkthrough practice, and he comes right up to me, introduces himself as Aaron Rodgers. I do the corny, oh, I know who you are, and that's like <laughs> uncomfortable, and, blah, blah. and he, he just laughed, and then he you know, asked where I'm from, asked about me, and then 
the next day we go into a walkthrough and the one, the first team offense goes. Then while the second team offense is up there, meanwhile, I'm just sitting there like trying to you know process everything. And next thing I know, who's standing next to me, Aaron Rodgers, asked me what questions I had, going over every play that the second team was going over about, hey, what would your call be here? Hey, this is why we would do this. This could be my check. And I'm like, this guy is taking time with the last man on the roster. That happened very, very frequently during every walkthrough. Well, then you get in even further and, you know, we had, you know, before one of the preseason games, there was an offensive line dinner. The offensive line, you know, it's usually, you know, the veterans, but they invited me. So I went, and who's there? Aaron Rodgers with all the guys, just being one of the guys. And then uh, just little things throughout, you know, eating breakfast with the rookies, uh, like I said, quizzing us on all these plays. It was very the little thing in training camp. You make a big block, and who's there smacking me on the helmet and saying, great job. I mean, it was just very little things. But the most important one for me was my final practice. It was, you know, we had a preseason game, and this, you know, we practiced the day before games. And, I, you know, I knew it was an opportunity uh, or a possibility that it would be my last practice in Green Bay. Um, and the most of the vets weren't going to play in the fourth preseason game. So for the practice, they didn't really have to do anything. So I got done running our offense versus scout team defense. Well, then, hey, I'm, I'm a – I'm an undrafted rookie. As soon as I get done doing that, I had to be the, the scout team center for the number one defense. And who comes in and taps out the quarterback to play quarterback for that entire drive with Aaron Rodgers? We had, about an 18, we had about an 18 play drive. And the best part was this very first play, we get up to the line of scrimmage. Now, mind you, all, this, all the plays are on cards because we're supposed to be running looks at the Saints will give our defense. So we get up there, and I'm looking across. And now, this is the classic walk through but it's the first three steps are very fast and hard yet yeah, how hard do you really go it's the very unsettling scenario of what a walk through slash day before the game really is well all i know is i have bj raji lined up in front right in front of me breathing down my neck and i have the mvp of the league under center i'm not letting him get to him so i fired off the ball that very first play that almost caused the brawl but end of the day i wasn't going to let anyone touch aaron Rodgers, right well, for that, the rest of that drive, the best part about it was it didn't matter what they were putting on the cars. We were getting the line of scrimmage, and Aaron was treating it like a game. He was making all the checks in the world using our plays, checking everything at the line of scrimmage. We got the defense, you know, jump off sides with this famous cadence for uh, the touchdown on the drive. And it was just one of those experiences. And I remember just thinking about it going, as cool as that was for me, I guarantee you this guy knew that for a handful of us it would be the last time we ever played football again. And he wanted to help create some memories for us because he didn't have to practice that day. But he chose to go in there and do that. I always found that that, 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 that settled with me over the years that I think he, you know, that was his purpose of this. So being able to catch up with him, you know, seven years later when I, you know, during the process of this book was very cool. So the stories about Aaron Rodgers just going to the darkness, playing Jeopardy all the time, not interacting with teammates, those are completely untrue because, as you're saying, you were definitely involved with him. Oh, yeah. And listen, were we, were we friends? No. And, and I'm very, very honest when I say that. Listen, every, every team, you have your handful of friends, you have your teammates. Now, me and him, we didn't, we didn't have, you know, we weren't texting buddies or anything like that, but it always seemed like any time you're in the building, if there was an opportunity for him to, to help me or talk to me, he was right there. So, yeah, I mean, look, what people do outside of the building, everyone's different. I mean, that was the one thing that was unique about walking the locker room. I'm walking into a locker room, and, uh, you know, half the locker room has kids. Half the locker room is married. Uh, some guys are divorced. Some guys uh, have their, their parents living with them. Some guys are still in an apartment because they never know when they're going to get cut. Like, everyone's in a different space in their life. So there's a lot of uniqueness that happens off the field, and guys are just in different stages. So to think that every single quarterback in the league is, you know, playing PlayStation with the rookies is unrealistic. And uh, if you're assuming that as, you know, one of these national hosts, you're just you got to dig into it a little bit more, not just assume and have something that fits your narrative. You know what I mean? Right, right. And and so we're going to delve into the draft process, and who's the better person to your story about Aaron Rodgers? I thought I knew everything about Aaron Rodgers, but I did not realize that, that you went through the entire process when you talked to him about how he thought, you know, he, the, inter, the interview with San Francisco with Mike Nolan, and he just said he didn't go, go so well. But the fact that he thought he was probably going to go to Tampa with John Gruden. So talk a little about the whole process with Aaron Rodgers in terms of his draft process. You know what's crazy? I was on Good Morning Football last month on NFL Network, and when I. <laughs> When I told them, you know, I have an Aaron Rodgers story that people just don't know, they're like, wait a second. 
and this was off camera at one point, they're like, that has to be your lead with this book because we think we know everything about the guy. And I'm like, no, you know, what's great. It was Aaron talked to me and he told me, he goes, listen, I was really, before we got in this call, he goes, I was really thinking about stuff that people don't know because listen, the narrative of Aaron Rodgers draft story was local Northern California boy wants to go to his hometown favorite team and doesn't and he falls to Green Bay the rest of history. No one knows what was actually happening. So, yeah, talking to Aaron, it was interesting because he was a Juco kid who ended up going to Cal, having a really good season, uh, a couple seasons at Cal. And there was really some unknown about what Mike Nolan, the San Fran, was going to do. So talking to Aaron about it, he said, listen, I, I, had, a, I had a great visit with them. Uh, I, he goes, I really hit it off with Mike McCarthy, who was the offensive coordinator in San Fran at the time, ironically. He goes, we really hit it off. We both had, you know, West Coast, you know, philosophy backgrounds and just really hit it off schematically and personality-wise. He was in, listen, turns out, you know, Mike Nolan wasn't his cup of tea. He'll fully admit that. But he also goes, listen, down the line, we found out Mike Nolan, you know, wasn't that a fan of mine either. And he goes, that's okay. Everyone's different. Um, but he goes, no, the thing going into the draft on draft day when they select Alex Smith that I thought I was going there is just wrong. He goes, I thought I had a shot during the process, but, you know, I don't know when it was, but a few days before we knew it wasn't going to be a thing. So he goes, that is the one thing. I was like, I said, well, this is great because I also know you didn't think you were going to fall down to 24 in Green Bay either, right? So where did you think you had a good shot to go? And that's when he brought up, he goes, listen, the single best, you know, visit slash confirmation I got was from Tampa Bay because John Gruden was a coach at the time they had came out to Cal to work to interview you know interview me meet with me go over tape and he goes Aaron said I I had a feeling they'd want to work me out so I had some of my other you know teammates from college they're ready just in case and he goes after the the meeting they asked hey can you work out he said absolutely so he goes we get down there we're kind of warmed up stretching out getting the ball loose a little bit and he goes next thing you know who's coming out of the tunnel is Jerry Rice. <laughs> this is like out of a movie. That's amazing. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and it's because you got to remember at this time, Jerry had already played for John Gruden in Oakland. But this was still when Jerry was somewhat thinking about a comeback during like the Denver-Seattle time when he was kind of bouncing a little bit late. But they bring him in because now you have a great NFL receiver who wants to continue working out. But now you have, that was Aaron Rodgers. Him and Joe Montana were Aaron Rodgers' heroes growing up. So you kind of get that. And Aaron jokes about the workout that, you know, he would throw a perfect pass, perfect pass. As soon as Jerry's up, it was like the hardest throw in the world for him to make just because he was so nervous. But he goes, it was an amazing time, great workout. And then to top it all off, this was back when the draft was the first time I was on a Saturday. They gave Aaron a call, I think he said Thursday, and it was John Gruden basically saying, if you're there at number five, we're taking you. So that's a, when the head coach is telling you a few days before the draft they're taking you at number five, you got to be pretty confident once the fourth pick is in that, hey, I might end up in Tampa. Well, they ended Tampa, you know, ends up taking the second best running back from uh, Auburn that year instead. And listen, I, I mentioned in the book about the quarterbacks that the John Gruden staff and brass had from that moment until the end of their time in Tampa Bay. And let's just say they're not Aaron Rodgers, but the floor for him, he thought was number eight. Cause that's where Arizona and Denny green had uh, the eighth pick. They needed a quarterback and they had just, he says we had great meetings. So he, he kind of felt number five was the place, but number eight was the floor. So at that point, then it was uh, once you kind of got to the, the teens, that's when they knew it was going to be a very interesting rest of the day. And he ends up going to, to Green Bay, and the rest is history on that one. Well, Miami, they drafted, they had the second pick. They drafted Ronnie Brown, who had a nice yep. career with the Dolphins. But Nick Saban was interviewed. I mean, you would think, what if Nick Saban would have drafted uh, uh, Rodgers with the second pick? Nick Saban might never go to Alabama, never win all these national championships. He'd have Aaron Rodgers and probably could win like five titles. That would have been amazing to pair Aaron Rodgers with Nick Saban in Miami. Oh, think what everybody in Miami would be thinking about then. But it, it, look at the draft. It was um, it was Alex Smith went one, Ronnie Brown two, Braylon Edwards to Cleveland three, Cedric Benson to the Bears four. Of course, they could have drafted Aaron Rodgers too. I'm mean, giving all these names of these teams. And then Tampa drafted yep. Cadillac Williams. Think of all these running backs. Brown, Benson, Williams were all running backs that were drafted. If you look at the, the whole, I was looking at this draft. It was Dan Orlowski is like the ESPN. If you turn on ESPN in the morning, get up. It was number 4145. Pollock, who's on the, the NCAA, was 17. And uh, there was another guy. Marcus Spears was also drafted. So everybody who ESPN has was in that, that one draft. And, and you know what's great about what you just said? You just named 
three guys who have been on TV for years. Meanwhile, Aaron Rodgers is still playing at a high level. It's <laughs> yeah. just it's unbelievable. Yeah, the Bears had their shot at him. Nick Saban had his shot at him, and and he he, he mentioned that you know meeting with Nick Saban and the Dolphins, and um, but the the team was Tampa, which is just uh, I thought that was very interesting because it's almost as if we've been trained to think it was uh, San Fran or nothing. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> well, and, and just to jump right back into your book, um, you talk about the agents and the process because of the draft slotting. It's like these players don't really hold out because they sort of know what they're going to make. There's some ways you can move some of the money around. And people say, what do they need an agent? But you go in the book, talk about these agents. You talk to three of them, Carter Chow, Lee Steinberg, Vince Taylor, about the process they do. I'm like, you need to have me because I'm going to help position you in order to get drafted as high as possible. But not just that, but get to the best team for you. Yeah, and, and that was so. I, the initial conversation I had, now mind you, Carter Chow is my agent, and uh, so I already knew a lot of his stuff, but some great stories from them. Like, for example, Lee Steinberg, the legend, he'll only take on four first-round caliber guys a year now, or, you know, uh, you know, uh, he learned early on because they have so much invested into a client because it takes a lot to – to invest to maximize each prospect's potential. And by potential, I mean all the communications, all the advice, all the resources that go into this. He can only take on four first-round type guys at a time. And like you said, the communication, it's its coaching up the guys, especially during the draft. And Lee gives two really good examples. Number one was uh, he actually now advises guys you know that have the opportunity, especially your quarterbacks, to go to the green room. He, he'd rather them not because he doesn't want them sitting in that Aaron Rodgers uh, scenario. He doesn't want them sitting in the Brady Quinn scenario where you're dropping and every camera's on you and you get that unfortunate. He goes, we rent places out. He goes, Patrick Mahomes, we rent it out. It was a country club. And Panini paid for it all. Like, that's how it's getting. But he goes, we surround you with family. And he goes, it started out where we would just rent out a hotel and make it look like our office. He goes, that's how it started. But he puts these guys in a much more comfortable scenario. Another great example that uh, uh, Lee gave during this is coaching guys during the draft. And by coaching, it's having so much communication going on that you try to limit the true surprises that these guys have. And that's one thing Aaron mentioned, too, is the biggest misconception with the draft is that there's tons of surprises. There really isn't. Now, the surprises are more so they're, – they're, not surprises when the picks are actually made. It's throughout how you're coaching the guys. So Lee talks about when he represented Ben Roethlisberger. Ben Roethlisberger wanted to be a New York Giant. No, don't say that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ben wanted to be a New York Giant, and the Chargers had the Senior Bowl, and they had Philip Rivers. So there was a really good relationship with the Chargers and Philip Rivers. So Ben thought, okay, if the Chargers and he knew the Giants, they knew the Giants did like Eli. But so Ben thought, hey, if the Giants take Eli number one. Or I'm sorry, if the Chargers take Eli number one. I am the preferred guy with the Giants. You know, they had it kind of figured out that hey, yeah, you know, if Eli taking Eli, but the Chargers like Phillip. So if they pass on him, I'm the guy who they would take in that scenario. So Ben was as soon as Eli goes number one to the Chargers, they, he said Roethlisberger and his family were ecstatic, thinking they were going to the Giants. And he had to coach them and calling them down saying, hey, 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 all this means, because Lee knew. Lee knew that the Giants loved Eli Manning, and Lee also knew the information about the Chargers loving Phillip Rivers due to the Senior Bowl. He knew this, so he had to coach Ben and say, listen, listen, listen. This just means there's going to be a trade. He goes, yeah, and he goes, it was so hard to try and calm him down because they were so excited thinking they were. But he, he had, had to coach him and warn him. So when, next thing you know, and that pick's winded down, I think it was number four, and that's winded down, winded down, you know, 14 minutes is almost up. This is back when they had 15 minute round, or minutes on for the first round. Is The closer they were getting there, the more that Ben thought there was a chance he was going to the Giants. And then right at like the 15th minute, 11th hour, we have a trade, and he goes, it was just deflating because as much as you try and coach it up, him and the family were so excited that it was really, it was funny. He goes, it was the best thing that happened for him, Paul, because he was perfect for Pittsburgh. But at that point, it was almost like uh, 
it wasn't as exciting as it should have been. And that was an example of as much as you can do to communicate and coach these guys up to not have the high expectations and, uh, you know, to prepare them for what's going to happen. Sometimes the emotions, these guys are so human and they're looking at their future. So it was just great when it comes to that. But these guys, all these agents were great. You know, Carter Chow talks about going through Julian Edelman and how everyone thought they were crazy for taking on this quarterback out of Kent State. And they didn't understand the vision that him and Don Yee had to, no, this guy can play anywhere. He can do DB drills. He can do special teams. He's a, he can play receiver. He's a perfect kind of, you know, you know, Swiss Army knife for, for, for an organization. You know, in case Donahue, uh, he, they work a region. He's a smaller, younger uh, guy, but they really worked at, you know, that mid- northern Midwest of, you know, the Dakotas and Minnesota. And uh, then Vincent Taylor, who he just – Vincent Taylor, who just represented last year's number one picture, Ron Walker – he also represents Trent Williams, who's the you know at at one point in his career was the highest paid lineman in football, and he really builds relationships and he likes doing, you know, investing with these guys outside of football and real estate and stuff like that. So it's really uh, cool to see how these guys. And I think the one thing that all of them I really really found great was they're all about relationships and wanting these guys to succeed off the field and after football as well, which, is, which I thought agents got a bad rap in this world of being sharks and all about the dollar and not caring about the player. Like, is is the complete opposite, which is which is awesome. So we keep on here about. So we're talking to Andy Phillips, author of Round Zero, Inside the NFL Draft, with the draft a few weeks away. It's a great guest to have on. Um, we saw the movie Draft Day with Kevin Costner. Um, everyone was, you know, the chaos, everything. And you interviewed Bill Polian and Ron Wolf, two of the greatest general managers of all time. And they said, we are the absolute opposite of what Kevin Costner is. We, I want total calmness. I want a library in the room. I don't want pounding on tables. Uh, talk about little your interviews with Polian and Wolf in terms of how they go get ready for the draft. Oh, it, it, both were fantastic. Polian, hilarious. He dropped that line very early, saying the only thing that's true about the movie Draft Day is all the bad food you eat on draft weekend. <laughs> Everything he goes is completely, you know, exaggerated slash fabricated. And the reason is, is exactly that. You know, the movie Draft Day makes it seem like this guy has no idea what he wants to do. Everything's last minute. He goes completely rogue or screaming, yelling. And it's it, the fact that you're going to be scouting the top quarterback in the draft that day. Well, the book is round zero inside the NFL draft. You're going to hear these stories, but a ton of more. You interview all the players. It's going to be great. So I really recommend this book. It's available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but Andy, thanks so much for coming on. I run sports true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. I we are getting dangerously close to the Kentucky Derby. One of our favorite events. Where do we stand here? The, the Florida Derby's in the books and it looks like we've got a massive favorite here in Forte. I'm not sure I like massive favorites in the Kentucky Derby, but what are you thinking here? Well, nothing happened this weekend here. The Santa Anita Derby, which practical move, uh, won a close race over Man and Hero. Bluegrass stakes were Tabit twice won by Neck Over Verified, and Ward Memorial were a 59 to 1 shot, Lord Miles won. So nothing happened in these races to hurt Forte. So everyone is, it's going to be Forte, Forte, Forte to going up to the Kentucky Derby because no one else is standing out at all as a, as a threat at all to Forte. I was talking to some of my horses guys um, going into the, the Florida Derby and asking, like, does anyone have a chance to beat Forte at the, at, the, at the Florida Derby? And they're like, Mike, this horse is so good. Horses that should be running in the Florida Derby shipped off to Arkansas. Just they don't even want to run against him now. Like, maybe they'll take their shot in the Derby, but all the good horses went and ran in the Arkansas Derby just to avoid Forte and getting that loss on their record. But it's 20 horses in the Kentucky Derby. Like, it's so hard for me to bet a two-to-one shot or whatever he's going to be to, to see him edge out 19 others. It's just so hard to do. I, I don't know how you make any money betting on this. Well, we had Michael Ivoroni on the show a couple times, and he had Big Brown. And Big Brown went into the Derby with that favorite. And Big Brown was a humongous favorite in the Derby, ended up winning the Derby, winning the Preakness, and getting the upset in the Belmont. So I think we're looking. We're going to see historic, more than even second. I mean, we're going to see odds on Forte coming to the morning line that we've never seen before because it just does not appear like not, Like if you saw a practical move had won Santa Anita by 20 lengths. Yeah. But these were all close races. No one had great speed. It's going to be, it'll be amazing. You're going to see horses, you're right, past the Kentucky Derby. Like, we have no shot. We're going to, we'll go to the, the Preakness, Preakness. Belmont, yeah. do those things. It, it, it's crazy how it worked out. That it, it, It's great to have favorites, and it, we always want to see a triple crown, but I like to make money along the way. <laughs> it's not going to be easy in this one. What's going on in racing? Well, first of all, they 
Bristol, NASCAR, I think, has made a horrendous mistake. First of all, they never used to run on Easter. They decided to run on Easter. They ran at Bristol. I watched it on TV. It was on. A, they take the track out and made it dirt, which doesn't work because these cars are not dirt cars. They're NASCARs. It doesn't make, it looked awful racing. They're going like 10 miles an hour, it seemed like, on TV. And no fans were in the stands in a, that 130,000-seat stadium. So I think it's from a, from a marketing point, it was a huge mistake. And uh, Christopher Bell won. He was like one of the first dirt racers to win. He's actually a dirt racer, so he won on that. But uh, we're excited here in Miami because Miami, May 5th and 7th, we're going to have the, the Formula One. They play there in Azerbaijan on April 20th to 30th and a week later in Miami, which is upsetting to some extent because it's the week of the Kentucky Derby. So you have the Kentucky Derby and Formula One. I have to decide between which one I want to go to. But I'll just, all our listeners, go to the Formula One. You don't have to fly to Kentucky. It is such an amazing event to go see these cars and to go see the qualifying sessions. And you don't have to go to the race on Sunday. Go Friday and Saturday. They don't need me to sell tickets. These tickets are super expensive. But I'm telling you, I think it is pretty awesome to see in these cars. It's like watching spaceships. It's like going to a Star Wars movie and actually being in it because it's pretty, pretty cool and how it goes on. I think it's cool that it's only in South Florida. And I, I can't wait for it on May 5th and 7th. I already said you're going to the play-in game Tuesday night uh, for the Miami Heat. Anything else on your agenda? That should be only it. I hope I don't go Friday. I'm hoping not to go Friday to a game because if they lose, that means they have to play again yeah. on Friday. So I hope I don't go to any other sports this week. No chance of uh, heading up to, say, Boston if they do uh, win that eight seed? It would be probably, I think on Sunday to start. I'm not sure. No, or I'll wait. Seeds. Yeah, I'll wait. I'll wait. I, mean, I don't know. They're not, they haven't really set those weeks. But no, I'm definitely Tuesday. But we'll have to see about hopefully no Friday at all. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for popping by. And thank you to Andy Phillips for stopping in. He's Iron Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Iron Sports.